Welcome to the Cinema Book Club podcast. I'm Charlene. And I'm Chelsea. Every episode, we read a book, then watch the film adaptation of the book and discuss. I'm a development producer, so I tend to work a lot with scripts and adaptations. And I'm a cinema programmer and watching films is what I do. Shall we? Let's go. It's been a while. It has been a while. We have made an executive decision. Yes. To skip ahead. Yes. We, at some point in the future, listeners, perhaps if there's another lockdown, I don't know. Mm. We might owe you a talented Mr. Ripley and a great Gatsby podcast. Yes. Maybe we'll just have loads of time sometime and we'll... Maybe? Just do them. Maybe? We'd, we'd, we'd have a good time talking about it. A lot that. to say. And, yeah. I, and I still, I still, you know, we, we also had the idea maybe that we do a joint episode because I think they are interesting yeah. to talk about together. But that's not what's happening today. No. Today we are skipping ahead to To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is part of our continuing 10-year anniversary series where we look at all of our favorites. And I think this was one we did in our first year. Yeah. Cinnabon book club and then we did it again because it was so popular yes i think we nearly sold out screen one in the lighthouse which is how many seats 277 and how many tickets did we sell uh this past monday 13 13 so <laughs> so i don't know what's the, happened the to the kill a well it's summer and yeah know. and what was nice though was that pretty much everybody bar maybe three people stayed behind for the chat so and, that's always and nice. we noticed you three Yes, we did. Been marked. Pointed at them in the screen. <laughs> said, oh, you're not, you didn't put your hand up. Oh. Okay, fine. Well, they're probably not listening to this podcast either. No, so, but also know. if you are, you know, you're welcome next time. We don't keep track. Are um, they though? I know they are. But uh, no, but it was really nice. And and again, we, we, we like to do things in the summer sometimes that are reminiscent maybe of some school summer reading. And yeah. that was certainly how I was introduced to To Kill a Mockingbird. What about you? I'd read it. I don't think I read it for book club. I read it separately before that, but like in my. Was it for school or just for. No, no, I, did, I read it like late, like when I was in my 20s or 30s. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I never read it in school. My sister did. So it was always on the shelf. But um, I think actually what happened was that I found a really pretty copy ah. somewhere and I went, "Ooh, this I'll, I'll read this version. Um, and I loved it. Like, I absolutely loved it. And I had seen the film, though. Um, but I love the book and I can't find my pretty version of it now. I had thought that my pretty version was in my dad's house on Long Island and then I found it um, in my house in Dublin. Yay! That was a nice one to read. I think I read it, I read it for school for the first time, which was 10th grade, Mrs. Tabor. Um, And then I think I reread it, you know, in my 20s just because, and then again for for book club Mm. last time. But that was a while ago. So it'd been a while since I'd... yeah. I'd read it. And um, it's also one of those ones that for me sticks out as like, you know, there's books that you read for school that you, you're you really just reading for school. And mm-hmm. as someone said in book club, you don't know if you like something if you're reading it for school. Yeah. yeah. But this was one of those ones. It was like this, The Giver and 1984, where I think the first books or maybe more this in 1984 were like kind of quote unquote grown up books that I read for school where I yeah. really sat up and I was like, oh, mm. oh, okay. This is what I did not like Dickens very much. So when we were reading, you know, okay. yeah. A Tale of Two Cities, I was zoning out, but, yeah. Yeah. um, but I, I, I love To Kill a Mockingbird every time I've read it and I get some, I got some quite different things out of it this time, which I think was, mm. 
which was fun. And also was, we had a little bit of a heat wave here. So it was kind of nice, nice to sitting in the out garden. in the garden. And, yeah. um, and what was it like for you the first time you read it? And then I, I mean, yeah, cause I was a grown up, So like, I just thought it was great. I just loved every second of it. And I just, I love how it just paints such a picture of what it's trying to paint a picture of, which yeah. is like a really specific time and place in America and um, a specific town and, family and situation and little personalities like everything just feels very lived in and lovely and warm and I love it and yeah. and then like you know the, the the little trick that I'm sure we'll obviously get into this a lot but like the trick of just having it be from Scout's point of view is so innocent that everything you're experiencing you're kind of experiencing with a bit of like oh Scout you know well, you could, it also helps you see you know underlines the absurdity of a lot of the problems, you know, yeah. uh, in America specifically, but, you know, and especially in this, in, in terms of, in terms of racism and, you know, when you're looking at it from a child's point of view, again, yeah. and kind of thinking, yeah, this is actually quite simple. But, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, or and it should be. What age were you when you read it? So 10th grade, I would have been... Ooh, I would have been 15, I guess, 14 or 15. So Jem's age. A little <laughs> older than Jem, I guess. Older than I Jem. Jem is 10 when oh, they okay. start. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because um, she's six. Oh, yeah. And then, but it's, I mean, um, I mean, I guess I sh I'll do the little summary version. Yes. I forgot about that. Go um, on. <laughs> and really quickly, because actually this is one that isn't, there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of little episodes, but essentially we, in in the book across a few years and in the film compressed to kind of one year and a, and a, a season mm. um, follow Scout, who is a little girl in Alabama in the 1930s and her older brother, Jem, uh, and they live with their father, Atticus, who is a single dad and a lawyer in the town and Calpurnia, who is their housekeeper and minder. And, Throughout the course of the years of the book and the year in the film, uh, Scout and Jem have various encounters with neighbors and people in the town and, a, and an obsession with a particular neighbor of theirs called Boo Radley, who a local legend has really grown up around because Boo uh, doesn't leave his house. And the reasons why he doesn't leave, whether it's because he chooses to or he's a madman or he's chained up to the bed by his mean father uh, every tale that you could imagine abounds and the, the the legend of Boo sort of follows them as kids. Um, they also have their friend Dill who comes to visit every summer and, you know, as Scout says, Dill meant summer. Um, uh, Dill is from Meridian, Mississippi, which he likes to tell everyone. Uh, son of a, a single mom who comes to stay with his aunt, who's one of Gem and Scout's neighbors and goes on the adventures with them. Um uh, and is also deeply interested in the idea of Boo Radley. Mm -hmm. And um, then at some point, uh, Scout and Jem become aware that their father has been appointed to defend Tom Robinson, who is a black man in the town who's been accused of rape by Mayella Ewell, who is a member of the notorious Ewell family who are quite poor and quite looked down on by the rest of the town. They live on the outskirts of town. They uh, are rather violent. The um, Her father, Mr. Ewell, is, is known to drink a lot and people don't think he really takes care of his kids. 
they don't go to school. They really spit in the face of authority and, uh, the town sort of just leaves them be, uh, but Mayella accuses Tom of rape and she is a white woman and he is a black man. And so his fate is sort of predetermined. Um, but Atticus decides to defend him properly. And the fact that Atticus gives him a full-blooded defense and in the course of the defense really basically proves Tom to be innocent, um, that rubs some people in the town the wrong way. And it also enrages Mr. Yule, who feels uh, humiliated by the whole experience. And um, Tom is found guilty despite Atticus's uh, protestations. And uh, while waiting for his appeal, tries to escape and is shot by the guards. Uh, So it feels like it's over and done with, but Mr. Yule's revenge is not is not complete. And he says to Atticus that he is going to get him. Atticus does not choose to think that this threat has any merit. And, um, one night when Jem and Scout are coming home from a school pageant, uh, Mr. Yule attacks them. They're saved by a mysterious figure, uh, who turns out to be none other than Boo Radley, who has been watching them and leaving them little gifts all of these years. Um, Mr. Yule is found with a knife in his chest And Atticus at first thinks Jem must have done it in self-defense, but eventually realizes through the explanation of Mr. Hectate, which is one of my favorite names, the uh, (laughs) sheriff in the town, that um, Boo is the one who killed Mr. Yule. And while it would be, you know, a matter of defense for any jury um, to bring someone like Boo, who's, you know, his shy ways, as Mm. Heck describes it, into the spotlight would be a sin. And uh, as Scout says in the movie, sort of like killing a mockingbird, which is a sin, according to Atticus. Um, So Boo is thanked and goes back to his home and Scout and Jem grow up and they're okay. But that experience, particularly through Tom Robinson's case, um, sort of pulls the veil for both of them from their idea that their town is full of good people because they realize that their town is is not as full of good people as they thought and people that they thought were good were not so good and people that they thought were scary like Boo um, are actually heroes. So it's a real real coming of age in in all the ways that it can be. So That was as beautiful a summary as one could ever wish for. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was beautiful. That was perfect. Wow. I well, feel like I didn't be, need to sit there and read that entire book. <laughs> that will be the last time. It's so, um, but you know, if you read it five times and uh, have a mother who's an English teacher who taught it <laughs> oh, for right. 20 years and you get to know To Kill a Mockingbird pretty yeah. well. So it was, it was also just a, yeah, story I talked about a lot growing up, I think. Yeah. It's very aware of the thematic elements of it, both mm. from... My own English class, but also my English teacher mother. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. That's a lot. Well, you did a very good job. So Thank well you. done. Um, so when you read this when you were 14 or mm-hmm. thereabouts, um, what what were the things that like really stood out to you or were, has that changed over the years? Um, I think I was really, I think it's like you said, I was caught up in the atmosphere of it. And I mm-hmm. just, and I think one of the things that's changed as I've gotten older and I read it is two things. One is I don't think I quite appreciated how funny it is. 
Yeah. Um, it's written with such a dry voice and, you know, it's, it's things like, you know, Scout will say, um, Jim gave a reasonable explanation of what Boo looked like, fanged teeth and drooling most of the time. Yeah, like it's it's this real deadpan yeah. uh, kind of <laughs> Southern way of speaking. And I think um, that, that there is a sort of an adult looking back on her life scout, which I think was criticized by some critics at the time. Even mm. felt like, well, this doesn't sound like the voice of a child. And yeah. it's not really, but no. it, it's also very funny. Um and I think that maybe what I didn't, and we talked a little bit about this the other night, but it is such a, it's such a massively big cultural American novel that I think that over time, what happens with things like that is that they sort of, they sort of get smoothed down into their like, you know, in, in discourse and in referencing, they kind of get smoothed down to their most basic parts. Yeah. And I think that the book is much more complicated than that. Yeah, and I think yeah. that one of the ways that I really felt like I noticed this time around was with Atticus, because I feel like um, Atticus is always presented kind of in pop culture as like the hero, the absolute infallible, perfect mm. father and lawyer. And he is a good man. And I don't say any of this because I think Atticus is a great character, but I also think one of the reasons he's a great character is because Harper Lee wrote him with a lot of flaws. And I think yeah. that some of those flaws are also embedded in interesting ways as in um you know at one point scout is afraid of the ku klux klan and you know the the book takes place in the 30s and uh and Atticus says you don't have to worry the klan really wasn't around here much it was only in the 20s and they were just a political organization really and uh but they've been run out and you don't have to worry about the klan anymore so you sort of think about that at the time in the thirties that he's saying that, mm. but when the book was written in the sixties, the Klan had researched and was a terrorist organization and also was a terrorist organization in the twenties, but people yeah. wanted to skate over that. So, and that's something that Harper Lee as a writer in the sixties during the civil rights movement would have been yeah, really yeah. aware of, but she's giving Atticus a line that a modern reader would know, like this man is a fool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, that's really interesting. And I think there are these little hints and I think that Atticus, um, yes, he's kind, but he's, he's also really patronizing yeah. to the black members of the community and calls them ignorant. Mm. And, um, you know, he, he, and the, and the whole kind of thrust of the story is this idea that I think is really relevant in America right now of, of just sort of diminishing things and wanting to go slow. And, you know, like this, it's like in Mississippi, goddamn the song, you know, everyone's saying go slow, but that's a sort of privilege to be able to move, yeah, move progression slowly. And I think Atticus really embodies that. And also he really assumes that like Tom Ewell won't hurt him or his children, because ultimately mm -hmm. he thinks that Tom will respect that social status that Atticus believes in, which is that yeah. they are white and also a quote unquote, better white than Tom and his family, or, or sorry, not Tom, than Mr. Yule and his family. But Mr. Yule does attack his kids. Yeah. He, yeah. he tries to kill them. And I feel like that's an allegory for America in 2022 of, oh no, they're, you know, they're, it's fine. People are just getting out of their system and it's only online and people wouldn't do that in real life. And then you yeah. have people storming the Capitol and, you know, <laughs> like blinded by privilege yeah. and so assuming I, it won't happen to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's all it's all there in the text, but I think that those flaws of Atticus don't always get spoken about. And yeah. I think 
the truth is it's not saying that he's a bad person. It's just like he's he is a person who can succeed and fail and yeah. he is doing a good thing, but also he could be doing more. Yeah. And like ultimately Scout as as like Harper Lee writes him as a character that Scout really respects, but even as grown up Scout really respects him. But because she sees that he did struggle, he's not like it's not easy. He's not like a, a man who does everything perfectly. He's a man who uh, tries real yeah. hard to be a good man. But as you say, not perfect, which just makes him much more interesting. And that shorthand for him being the perfect American man. Um, yeah, it does kind of dismiss a little bit of the more interesting nuances of the character and yeah. the book. And I And I do think... I will say, like, I really love the film. I really love watching the film. I don't know that I love it as the best adaptation of the book, always, because I do think that some of some of those edges of Atticus are a little bit smoothed mm. over in the film as well, because it's Gregory Peck and because it's a great, you know, we want to give him the hero performance. And yeah. and I love that as its own thing. I mm -hmm. just don't know. I don't know if I would like to see some other. I would love to see another version of To Kill a Mockingbird that a kind of allowed a little bit more of those, the nuances that the book yeah. allows. Um, I'd be very suspicious of a new adaptation because I, I would just, I feel like there's something lightning in a bottle that this film does really right. So like, I don't disagree with you, but like, I'd be so worried that everything else would go wrong mm. because it needs that blanket of nostalgia to make it lovely. And I'd be worried that it would lose that in but favor I of trying to, but I guess what the book, I guess that's it, is that it's almost a little too lovely for me. And it's yeah. not a lovely time, you know, mm -hmm. it's not. And and the and the book is really about, again, that blanket kind of being pulled away. Yeah, but and it I has, it establishes the blanket very nicely as well. Yeah, but I don't think the film pulls the blanket away enough. Yeah, I no, don't no, think no, that, I, I think, I think the, the yeah. film kind of like still makes it about like, boo, a nice neighbor. And, you know, like, I, I don't think that the kind of the feeling that you get in the book of, you know, from actually more from Jem in mm. some ways because he's a little bit older than Scout and he really like, he, he you know, you can watch Scout observe him, but you yeah. you can hear Miss Maudie and others talking about like Jem is realizing that like, yeah, the world is not going to be the safe place that he thought it was. Mm. And I think it's really devastating in the book. And I think the book does the great job of giving you that warmth, but then breaking your heart with yeah. it. And I just wanted that a little bit more. In the yeah, film. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And I, I, I don't disagree with that point. I just, I would be so, if I heard there was another To Killing Mockingbird adaptation, I'd be so suspicious. Well, I'm very of. curious about the the play, the Aaron Sorkin one, because that is, I, I don't know if that, if it accomplishes that, but people are certainly yeah. very um Can't imagine it's hugely nostalgic, though. Really? I think Aaron Sorkin think? would really hugely nostalgic. Yeah, well, I'd I like to, I would like to see it. Um, And it's on the West End at the minute. Yeah. Isn't so it? The rape spell? Just use our... We just use our massive budget for yeah. Cinema Book Club. Yeah, our Cinema Book Club budget. We'll get <laughs> flown over there and we'll do part two of this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, there is one other question I had around that, but I've lost it. So, okay, go ahead. Um, I, I just wanted to say, I thought that there, like a lot of the people who were in our chat the other night kind of agreed with the film adaptation, with you with the film adaptation, that the it doesn't quite 
cut as deep as the book. I was surprised by that. Me too, actually. I mean, I think, and because, and I would also, and this is not, I'm not trying to be ageist, but it's not like we, it was a very mixed crowd of different ages and people like seen like 15 year olds all the way up to, I don't know, people older than us. Yeah. (laughs) So I think, I thought that was really interesting. Quite a few people felt it was a bit saccharine. Yeah. It's mad because I, I, I can't really remember, but I felt like the last few times we had the discussion for a cinema book club, there was a real positivity towards the film. Well, certainly the last time we did it, we had about 35 people yeah, stay behind and it was just you and I giving a lecture on <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird. There was too many people. No, we can't. no way to have a There's conversation no So it was just it. me swooning over the film. So that, it, honestly, that might have just been us <laughs> being like, well, Gregory Peck, you know. But it's interesting because I'm just wondering, like thinking on what you've said and the, the tone. Now, it wasn't everyone hated the film or anything, but there was no. that like tone that... And and also the lack of people who actually came to the screening. I'm just wondering if there's something that's shifted in the world that um, since 2015 or yeah, I can, I can think of quite a few. I yeah, anything happening? Quite a few things that have happened. In the it's world. interesting. I wonder, like, is there less of an appetite for um, that I, version I, of things? I think I think there is, and I don't. I don't mind that. I, I like that. Th- I like that attitudes change towards art. That's what makes art interesting to me. And that's where I, you know, I think that I feel differently about To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Both as a book and as a film. And it's not, it's not like, I think it's, it's struck off, but I do think that like the film to me felt less relevant mm. this time where the book felt more relevant. Yeah. And that was a bit surprising to me. Mm. Um, and like one of the things, you know, when we talked about this as well, and you know, you had a different reading in the film, but um, in the book, there's when Tom is shot, there's a point of saying the police shot him 17 times in the back and they didn't need to do that. Mm. Uh, and in the film, it's he was trying to escape and the police shot him. They were trying to wound him, but they missed. And that's how he died. And it, it felt to me that the film was um, polishing over that moment of brutality that the book was making a moment to point out that moment of brutality. Yeah. Um, when I, it struck me when I was watching it that it's shot in such a way that I know you had a different reading of this, but like it made me go, oh, he's very clearly saying that he thinks that this was this was like a murder <laughs> um, because he's shot from behind and you can't see his face. And, I, and like you had said that he was trying to hide his emotions and maybe that's true, but like my interpretation of it watching it, which I hadn't really clocked any other time I'd seen it was that he's like not not telling them a lie but like just not really believing that this is what happened but that's interesting too because yeah would you wouldn't necessarily have had that interpretation 10 years ago no no and I wouldn't have thought of it yeah wouldn't have assumed that he was just shot by the police but like now you're just like well obviously um but yeah I just it, it struck me how how they chose to shoot him which is like we it's a weird positioning he's kind of like turned away from the camera it's really odd but um but in in any case it's still like it's definitely them best case scenario it's them trying to in some way insinuate that maybe the police weren't being completely yeah on, i mean on in worst case they are polishing over it but the book certainly isn't no not at all and, and yeah. you know, it's definitely um you know i was i was thinking about um it was it was later than To Kill a Mockingbird when 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 seventeen seventy six the musical film was made. There's a there is a song about um, the called Cool Considerate Men, which is about the Southern 
members of Congress who want to keep slavery in the Constitution, and they did an advanced screening of the film for Nixon, who made them take that song out. Uh, oh. And in subsequent re-releases of the film, it's back in. I've never seen this film. I mean, to I don't be honest, know what it is. Oh, 1776 is a very dorky musical. But <laughs> 1776 walked so Hamilton could run. Okay. Um, or maybe 1776 sat, uh, you know, sat so bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson could walk so Hamilton don't know what that is. I was really being, <laughs> you know, del- delving into my uh, presidential musical trivia. But um, it's about the signing of the dec- – or the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Okay. You know, very wholesome musical. But like – that, like that is a documented uh, note. We are you are being told by the higher ups wow. to cover over this part of American history because we do not want the Republicans seen in that light. Thank you very mm. much. Um, so again, there is precedent for that kind, and you know, like and we also know it happens in smaller ways. It's not always from Nixon. Sometimes it's just from <laughs> the head of the studio. Yeah. Um, so, but but again, it goes back to that thing of, you know, the film. The nostalgia in the film is so potent, yeah. and I think that people are rightly suspicious of that nostalgia these mm. days because it really is an America that never really existed, yeah. um, and also maybe one that we've just seen quite a lot of, and are now realizing how much we've not been, you know, has has not been shared or told to us. Yeah, and, um, but I would argue that the the nostalgia in the film helps to underline the point of the film being like that it's things aren't as rosy as you think when you're six or whatever yeah but I think I think maybe I felt a little bit of the like there's still that sort of overall leaving of like oh wasn't that enough? like I leave the yeah. film feeling like oh wasn't that a sort of nicer time and it wasn't oh, you know like okay. I feel there's a little bit of the film where I feel a bit like oh but the long summer days and you know mm-hmm. they're having the nice meals and they go home for lunch and like they can just why you know like I, I and I, I don't know and, and again, it's because, and someone said this in the book club too, like they, they really kind of go back into the boo story yeah. um, quite quickly. And that's yeah, the note yeah. that the film leaves you on is mm. about boo. It's not leaving you about Tom and it's not leaving you about the, yeah. it's not leaving you about the darkness of the town. It's leaving you about the, the good of the town. And yeah. that's, you know, a happy ending in Hollywood and fine. But I just yeah. think in, given the subject matter and where we are right now in, in the States and in race relations I think that we all just feel a bit more suspicious of it yeah I I suppose though I I will always defend things like that because it existed at that time just like 1963 wrapping little things up in packages for people to want to consume and I'd argue that it wouldn't have reached as broad an audience and given its message out to the world if it was packaged less sweetly yeah, very possibly. But so also that message, that. the message is, if the message is sort of, wasn't this a great time, which is sort of sometimes, it's not the... But I don't think that is the message. I think I think the message is still loud and clear. Like, I don't think there's any way of coming away from that film not being moved by the racism storyline and understanding that that's what the film's trying to do. Um, but I also think that, like, you know, there is a version of this that could exist that's less sweet, but then would people have gone in their droves with their kids and I mean I don't know maybe it was also again in the middle of the civil rights movement like the yeah. things were very hot at the time that this film came out too it's not like thing, you know so. yeah but what I mean is that like maybe people wouldn't have gone like maybe the, maybe audiences wouldn't consume this you're wrapping it up sweetly so that people will take it and learn from it and if it was more hard-hitting they might be like oh it's a bit of a bummer mm-hmm. you know like 
I get that too. And, and I'm grateful for things that do that because they, when they survive, I think that that makes sense. It's better for it to exist like that than people not knowing not about having it. Or, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, I mean, like that's still taught in schools all the time or most of the time now. And uh, I think people, it might be on the list of banned books currently. Like, yeah. And so. I think, actually, I think it's been taken off the curriculum here mm. recently. But um, but anyway, like it's it's just something that I I'll always find myself defending things that have had to tone down things in order to get something out there. If you feel like it's. You know, there might be a more sophisticated way to do it, but at the same time, maybe it wouldn't have reached an audience. And it's done good work mm-hmm. over the years, I think. Yeah, it's just sort of I think I think what we felt almost with the audience that we had and the size of the audience was that it's it's sort of scope of work might be coming to an end in some ways. Like yeah. it might, you know, like it we don't need it in the same way. Oh yeah, well any, that's it. Um, yeah, which is not to say again, not to say it shouldn't exist or what anything like that, but it's just like actually. W- you know, maybe, and maybe that's a great success of the films. Like it's run its course and now we need to have things that will make us think yeah. further well, We talked deeper. before about the hate you give, which yeah. is like maybe, you know, slightly similar thing, but does get to push things a bit further because we're further along in the conversation. Yeah. So we make films like that now. Yeah. Yeah. More, more of them. More. Of them. But I also, which is why I would also love to see a kind of properly nuanced, you know, um, version of To Kill a Mockingbird that might be able to 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 hit the balance that the book does, which is that mm. like the world is not your y- your good town of the good folk aren't that good. Yeah. Ultimately, when when they're put to the test, they put someone like At- they make someone like Atticus do their dirty work, as Miss Maudie says. There's you know mm. men in the town, there's men in this world who have to do the things that other people don't want to do. Yeah. Um, and. And also can have the Boo Radley. So, you know, like, I think that there's a way to have all of it. I think. Has anyone ever done it? Was there like a TV movie? Probably. But like, I don't know that anyone has ever, like, there hasn't been a modern adaptation. I keep going back to the the play. And I think actually the estate might have something to do with that. I think the estate Mm. is quite strict about it. Like, it's kind of weird there hasn't been a 10 part HBO thing or something that's like high end prestige television um at some point yeah because there hasn't and yeah that's that is interesting they're quite um particular the harper lee estate yes um i understand that to be so i i I actually meant to do more reading on this because i mentioned it at the chat but i hadn't read it properly but that there was some legal issue around the play because it was more from atticus's point of view and they didn't feel that represented the book in the way that they wanted it to but the legal dispute got sorted before the play started but it's just interesting that they have such a handle on it yeah now still like uh how many years has she when did she pass away not that long ago Five, i think it was seven, i think ago? it was 2016 maybe or 17 yeah yeah it wasn't that long ago but um glad someone's there protecting it anyway yeah me too um well can we talk about casting for a moment yes uh, we'll start with Gregory Peck because obviously, you know, we do love Gregory. I mean, great voice. Yeah. Um, great, great performance, I think. You know? It is a great performance. And like, like, I wouldn't really, you know, I wouldn't be a mad lover of Gregory Peck or like have a huge knowledge or interest in Gregory Peck. So I'd always be a Jimmy Stewart gal. 
So it's just to say someone, when we were talking in book club the other day, or like, what else has Gregory Peck been in? And I, you know, I obviously said Moby Dick, but The Omen, right? That's Gregory Peck. Yeah. 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 Uh, yes. <laughs> That's a great double bill right there. there um, yeah. Well, like I, I, he wouldn't like, he's not my Jimmy Stewart, you know, like he's not that guy. Um, but I like, he's just so, he's so great in this. I, I would almost have not cast him because he seems like too handsome and too good or something but like he's great like he he really I think he really sells the notion of Atticus Finch and what he stands for and he's so handsome um but but he's so he's so great in that final court scene and what he's selling and like Jesus I mean no like they really go to town on this speech and how long he gets to talk in the courtroom for his Oscar he does get to talk um, for which I assume he won I actually don't know if he even did but um he goes on for a long time but he he really gives it socks and I think he's brilliant and he's so easy to watch and I don't mean that just being easy on the eye he's easy to watch and um it's a powerful performance and I, what I really like is his quiet little moments with the kids like small little things where you can, you know, Scout will ask him a question and you'll just see him think for a second before he answers and like little things like that that I, I found really moving in his performance. I think his performance is also really generous to the child actors. Oh, yeah. I think that he doesn't, like he gets that it's Scout's story. Like yeah. he gets that it's them and let's, you know, as you say, like you can see him listening. Yeah. And he's not trying to necessarily chew up the scenery in a scene that he's in just because he's in it like yeah. he, he knows he knows the brief absolutely and and not to skip away from him but like you can see that in how brilliant the children's performances are like the children are given serious time to shine in this film both uh mary badham who plays scout i can't think of the actor's name who played Jem, but they're both phenomenal like they feel like they feel like real children reacting to real experiences and not actory children if that makes sense and think around that time a lot of children were very actory children um but they have this kind of raw spirit about them that i think is is amazing and like it feels very modern like really modern yeah i think so too i also sorry roman holiday i was just thinking of course like there's so many that's gregory Beck. yeah right. and that was just watched over that last ten, it was summer. like 10 years before <laughs> to kill a mockingbird wow so that's yeah the other thing as well is i think that um He's like he's sort he's the right age in to kill. I mean, he's not quite I think Atticus is fifty yeah. in the book. And I guess so Feck was born in nineteen sixteen and the film was nineteen sixty-two. It's too complicated math. For I can't me, do that. But he's forty <laughs> Six. Okay, because they do say in the film he's almost fifty. Yeah. So so, so and, and I think that's an interesting it, it's that's a good choice as well because he yeah. is quite you know he's very handsome and and all mm. the things you say but he is the right age yeah <laughs> you know and he is kind of like slightly bedraggled like slightly kind of like he's tired and like he does that thing where he goes away and reads nighttime because he's tired <laughs> like you know and I I like that yeah that's he not did and over. he did win the Academy Award ah uh, fair play um and it also won the the film won best adapted screenplay and art direction oh it's a beautiful looking film yeah. It really is. For something that's so enclosed, it's so handsome. I think that's it. They did a really nice job of it. I wouldn't have. I, I, it actually just struck me watching it the other night that like I didn't remember how pretty it is. It looks yeah. really nice. And I had forgotten no that business too. being that nice looking. There's a nice quote here from Gregory Peck um, where he says, you know, they sent him the book and wanted him to take the role. So he said, I got started on it. And of course, I sat up all night and read straight through it. And I called him about eight o'clock in the morning and said, when do I start? Oh, that's nice. Um. 
And he did request some changes that deviated from the book, mm. mainly showing more scenes of Peck in the courtroom mm. than were in the original <laughs> rough cut, uh, thus sh shifting some of the focus away from the children who'd been the focus of the book. Um, and I think that that is something that, you you know, we we and other people in the in the group felt was that like mm. the shift from the children's point of view to the courtroom felt a little abrupt yeah. and quite long. Yes. And felt like there are ways that you could have done it that still incorporated the children as the I book. Think very does. easily. Is this very just Gregory easily. Peck's fault? Maybe. <laughs> I think that's what we this, all picked up on that. But like it does it. kind of shift away from we're we're aware the children are there. That's established. But then it's the Gregory Peck show for a while and then it's established that they're there again yeah. at the end. But yeah, that's really interesting because well, I can also see why a filmmaker would make that decision to make that speech more poignant, but let's just blame Gregory Peck. Just to be gossip. I think it I think it might I mean I think he might have had quite a bit of sway there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um he was Gregory Peck after all. Yeah. But as you say, the the children are, are so brilliant as well. Um the little them. boy who plays Dill. Oh um, we didn't say sorry, we didn't say, and it's probably pretty common knowledge, but Dill is based on Truman Capote, who yeah. is Harper Lee, uh Harper Lee's best friend growing up and used to spend summers mm. uh it's very entertaining to think of him as Truman Capote as a and child. He's, and he's, so, he's just like <laughs> telling these tall tales all the time. And But he's such a sensitive boy. Yeah. And I really, um, I mean, one of the things is jumping around a bit, but I, a scene I really missed from the book that I think had it been in the film would have solved a lot of the things we're talking about, both in terms of, you know, kind of incorporating some of the more tragic elements of the town and the children's point of view was... In the book, when uh, Dill just starts weeping in the courtroom mm. and Jem makes Scout take him out because he's crying too much. And outside, Bill uh, Dill can't really articulate himself. But what he's trying to say is like watching the prosecution question Tom and seeing the different way they spoke to him than they spoke to white men. Yeah. Really affected him. And it, re and it just made him sad because they felt like he... They weren't treating him as another human. Mm. And th and they have this lovely scene with Dolphus Raymond, who's this, you know, they th everyone calls the town drunk and is always walking around with a brown paper bag. And he married a black woman and lives on the mm. edge of town with a bunch of mixed race children. And it's all very, you know, scandalous. And Dolphus sort of gives Dill some of his brown paper bag, which is another greatly dry yeah. moment from Scout, which is <laughs> he seemed to take great pleasure in the corruption of a child <laughs> and then you know dill just grins and says it's coca-cola <laughs> and then dolphus says people it's easier for people to handle me if they think i'm just drinking whiskey all the time yeah. but the truth is i don't drink and dill someday you're gonna lose this thing in you that makes you see how inhumane this is because mm -hmm. you'll just get you'll just get polished over and you'll just say, this is just how things are, which is what Atticus says. Yeah. And, and he's like, and it'll be a shame when that happens because yeah. um, that's why things aren't changing. Yeah. He, he's a really good character, actually. That's it is great. a shame that he's gone. Like, I, I'd like to read a book about him. Yeah. What a, what a life he's living. I mean, <laughs> staggering around the town drinking Coca-Cola. <laughs> it's such a, it's such a rich world. Like, and, and yeah. that is that real, like the beauty in Harper Lee's writing where it's like every single one of those characters you just go off with. Yeah, you know. totally. Yeah, they all have interesting stories. Like Mrs. DeBose, the um, oh, yeah. <laughs> morphine addict. Yeah, addict. And obviously Calpurnia yeah. is a hero. One other thing that everybody missed from the book that's not in the film is when they go to church with Calpurnia and they get to meet all of the all the people in the church, all of her community, and they 
they just love them and are welcomed yeah. and it's lovely. And Except then one person who doesn't welcome them and they go through yeah, that as well. And, yeah. And I think they also, they don't, they don't use the term code switching, obviously, which is very modern, but they, mm. they question Calpurnian while she, why she talks differently in the church than she does with them. And that's where some of the sort of like casual racism of even Harper Lee's writing comes in. Cause it's the sort of, well, don't they know it's better to talk like well, properly? Yeah. And, you know, like what, what does that mean? What is speaking properly? Like it's, yeah. you know, made up, but yeah. Um, but there is still that notice of like, okay, yes, this is someone who has to live two lives in order to live in one town. Yeah. And that's weird. Mm. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a really nice experience for us to have with the children to kind of see yet another part of the town or like, you know, part of the town that's the outskirts, but it's part of the town. It's a huge part of the community. It's a really small town, but like it's not part of their world in any way, shape or form, except that Calpurnia comes to their house every day. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's good. Again, like I hate being like, oh, it's a shame they didn't put it in because then it would be an extremely long film. But just those two scenes. It is a shame. <laughs> but it is two hours and 10 minutes long as it stands. But uh, maybe we could cut some of Gregory Peck's courtroom speech. You know what? You could have those two scenes <laughs> in and it would be 225 and I'd be OK with that. Yeah, that and is you true. you could cut yeah. down the courtroom Easily. and then it would Actually, be 220. Less. I bet yeah. you could have those two scenes and they're really super short. Just give me a script yeah. and just yeah. let you chop into it. Uh, <laughs> Maybe yeah. they shot them. Yeah. Never know. Um, speaking of shot, um, can I, I would like to make my other point that we talked about <laughs> okay. the other day, which is um, I, I very often like rail against the supposed wisdom of screenwriting books and gurus and oh yeah it's like what is she we going? all know the the save the cat um book which I have to be honest like there's there's always good advice in every you know like it's I'm not trying to rail against any one thing but I I do think it's funny that Atticus Finch who is the most celebrated hero I think you should explain what save the cat is save the cat sorry is a screenwriting book that posits that you need to have if you have a particularly if you have a difficult main character you should have them do something like save a cat early on so that the audience um you know empathizes with yeah. them or, or whatever and i and i just feel like atticus finch the one of the most celebrated moral compasses of uh, american culture shoots a dog <laughs> in this movie and is <laughs> and is a hero because of it <laughs> And we all love him. So, you know what? I wonder, does that come up in the book as like the antithesis to saving the cat? I, I, I haven't know, read it. Probably we should. And probably it does. Um, because probably <laughs> it, says, makes, it probably is, you know, does make the point that like it's context. Yeah. Uh, I'd I, like to know how they got that dog to like dance. Like the dog is like hopping around the yeah. street like he's rabid. But like I was just watching it going like, what do you do to that dog? I think I think that's a thing that. Dance. Dog actors can do. I haven't a clue what dog actors can do. I can't believe anyone gets animals to act. It's yep. amazing to me. <laughs> um, but but yes, that is it, that is a moment that to me. I want to just like watching it on screen, particularly. I'm like, wow. What's the dog's name again? Timothy. Timothy Johnson. Timothy Johnson. So I was just very amused at the idea that people call their dogs with their last name <laughs> as well as their first name. But actually, uh, calling your pet by a human name is funny anyway. The best of times. So. Um, what else did we like in the book or film? I mean, one, there's a, there's a bit of talk about, you know, some people who'd read the book felt like it didn't really get going until the court case came in and that mm. the, the earlier stuff was more incidental. And, um, and I can see that. And I think, I think that actually there is, you know, this is Harper Lee's first novel. And I think her editor has talked about the, you know, 
it took a lot of work. It took yeah. a lot of going through many, many drafts with her in order to put something together that had that sort of coherence. Yeah. So I think that there is an episodic nature to the to the book that maybe a slight, you know, like there could have been a slightly more polished version, although yeah. I, think, I think it reads brilliantly. But I but I do I do feel that like you know, despite its episodic nature, each of those episodes teaches Jem and Scout a lesson yeah. that ends up affecting them in the last, you know, yeah. section of the book and kind of what their takeaway is. Mm. And whether that's reading to Mrs. DeBose while she goes through her morphine mm. withdrawal or um you know, whether or, you know, the the a few times when they go to Boo Radley's house or adventures that they go on with dill and and all of that sort yeah. of stuff i think um the kind of visiting atticus's family and mm. um you know their aunt who comes to live with them for a while like it all accumulates to something it um, does yeah but i guess it's the intrigue starts properly with the courtroom stuff that's yeah. where it starts to feel i guess more like a film yeah you know yeah, like yeah, that's, yeah, where that's, true. that's where it feels less novelistic and, and starts to take on maybe a slightly They're more quite different structure. like the, not it doesn't it's not jarringly different but it's different in that like there's two very separate things. So like when someone says it doesn't kick off until the courtroom stuff, I'm like, I totally see how you'd feel like that. I love just sitting there reading all their little adventures. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it is completely different. And I think pace the, or... the sort of the drip feed of this happening, I think I noticed more in this, mm. this version of the book where it sort of, I mean, the film does something quite clever and very early on, you see the judge Taylor comes over oh, yeah. and, you know, says Atticus, I'm giving you this case, um, which, as Miss Maudie points out, is a sign of progress that Judge Taylor wants to make sure that someone like Atticus yeah. who will actually do the job of defense mm. is giving this guy a shot. Um, but I think the way in the book, you know, she gets into a fight with um, with someone at school because he calls Atticus an end lover. Yeah. And you sort of get these hints of, of quite a long time that Atticus has been working on this and that like that's mm. and that's why their aunt comes to stay with them. Yeah. You know, there's the excuse given to Scout that, oh, it's it's it'd be good for you to have a lady around the house. Mm. But actually the sub, you know, when you're an adult reading it, you'd be like, oh, yeah, no, this is just because like things are going to kick off. Yeah. And Atticus needs help. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, so I do. I, I think that it's it's woven in well in the book. But. Yeah, I think so, too. It's probably a little bit more abrupt in the film, but that's, that's fine, I guess. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what happens. Um, something we haven't talked about that we talked about the other night um, was the the grilling of Mayella Yule. Mm. And I was curious because you had just been to see Prima Fassi, the NT Live um, production. I haven't yeah. seen it yet. Um, but I was thinking about it and I was thinking, oh, damn, I wish I'd watched this before I'd seen To Kill a Mockingbird. But um it's it, it's handled interestingly in that I think it's very, very topical at the moment how we speak to women about their alleged rapes. And the it's, it's a difficult scene to watch. Kind of deserves some credit for how it goes down, I think. I think it's, it's tricky. I think that that works better in the film than in the book. Yeah. And maybe that's where you get this when, when you can have. I think the film Gregory Peck shows that he's pained asking her these questions. Yeah. And I think in the book, just by the nature of, you know, it can feel a little colder. Mm. And I think also the book gets a little bit in the, like, well, why didn't you just run away? Why didn't you yeah. just, you know, like all, all the sort of 
all the sort of questions that like we know are not yeah, <laughs> not yeah. useful or um but I think what what everyone seemed to feel in the film was that the the film was doing a good job of telling us that Mayella was lying, but she was lying to protect herself, not as a matter of reputation, which or rather that that was part of it, but yeah. but also as a matter of survival because her father would kill her, yeah, and rightly makes her father the villain, yeah, rather than her, although she has done a villainous, yeah, thing. yeah, it's very empathetic towards her, and she the actress who plays her she's so on edge and she's she's terrified and she's sweating and like again like felt like a very modern performance from that actress Mm -hmm. like there's a million ways you could play that and I think she played it the the best way I can think of like so she's not like a um she's not smug in any way about this like she is like freaking out because she she knows what she's done is wrong she had to do it her father is Possibly more villainous in the book because we just spend a bit more time with him and we learn a little bit more about what he does to her. But like, I think it's established well enough that like she's just terrified of him. But yeah, I was really I was kind of expecting to be cringing watching that. And while obviously it's not a pleasant thing to watch, I think they did a great job for 1963 or whenever this was made. I think I think that everyone rightly felt uncomfortable watching it. And I think that it wants you to be uncomfortable and I think it should be uncomfortable. And I think that there's maybe been periods in our history where we were less. Where everyone would have just cast Mela purely as a villain. Yeah. And I and I think that I'm almost surprised that they didn't. Yeah. (laughs) But but I I actually and I think that actually, you know, if you were talking about this book in the like late 90s, it would have just been. You would have talked about her differently. Mm. Um, And I do think that we. I mean, there's that we talked about this a bit too, but there's that line in the book where Tom is giving the account of what happened, and he says that she started kissing him, and she said she'd never kissed a man before, and what her father does to her doesn't count. Yeah, and I think it's really clever the way the book phrases that because you could read that in an innocent way, which is, and the way my father kisses me to bed when I was a little kid that doesn't count. That's not kissing yeah. a man. Or it could be something much darker and much more abusive. Mm-hmm. And I think both readings are valid. Yeah. Uh, and I think probably depending on where you are when you read it and what year, you're going to pick up a different yeah, yeah. a different thing. But I think you you get the sense that, like, he's a bad guy. Bad guy. <laughs> Great actor. Yeah. Really good. I, I found him so frightening. Like, mm-hmm. I actually found that character really frightening. And before he attacks the children in the woods. Yeah. But like just like the second he shows up and he's so. I don't know, there's just something like he I think you might have made this point or somebody made this point about how he's able to be like the neighborly man, but then switches really, really quickly. And he's terrifying They shoot him so well as well, like not in a a villain way, but like he's right up there in the camera all the time. And it's yeah, I think he's a a great villain. Yeah. The only thing that kind of bugs me is that he just sort of only then the way they shoot him after that, like when he comes to Tom's house a few times, he does become kind of like the strings come up and he oh, creeps yeah, out through the dark creepy. and he's like at the window. What are and you doing there? <laughs> and you're just sort of, I mean, it, but it's, and it's really awful. I mean, they're awful scenes, you know? And yeah. like, I think I, and again, I think that you feel, you'd feel the audience flinch when he says, when he calls the, you know, black man who's probably 10 years older than him, boy. Yeah. You can every, you can feel yeah. everyone, yeah. Um, 
like really not like yeah, <laughs> not liking that. Horrible. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think again, yeah, another well cast, definitely. And speaking of coming out from shadows, Robert Duvall, as Robert Boo Duvall Radley. as Boo Radley making his screen yeah. debut. I wonder how old he was. He didn't seem, he didn't look young. Like, he looked, I don't know. He must have been in his 20s, maybe. Well, I thought he looked like he was 40. I don't think Robert Duvall was ever young. Well, I don't know, he's just not the type. But, um, but I mean, he doesn't really get to do much in fairness, but I, I love him. I love when he comes out of the shadows. And uh, I guess he was 32. Right. Yeah, he doesn't look, I would have thought Boo was a little bit younger, but I mean, don't know if there's anything to suggest that, but he, um, yeah, it's such a weird little scene. We were talking about it a bit at the at our discussion the other night, but like, just that like he's he's kind of shot like where he's just been hiding behind the door the whole time, rather than nobody noticed him in the corner. But it does kind of swing open, and it's so dramatic how he's revealed, yeah, in the shadows. But um, but I also think it's such a great reveal, and it is a good reveal. I mean, <laughs> it's like it's played for drama. And it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely more it, like it makes more sense in the book. Like it. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it totally makes more sense in the book. But it's so, I mean, I remember watching that film. I can't remember how old I was when I watched the film, but definitely not like young, like I was probably 18 or something. Um, But getting a genuine, like not a fright, because it's not scary, but like a burst of something. Like it just felt to me like pure cinema. Like it really made me feel, I was like, and then when she says, hey boo, and it's such a a little uh, shift in tone and it's lovely. And it's such a, it's such a powerful little moment. And yeah, he doesn't really have to do much. So I won't say it's a great performance by Robert Duvall because he didn't have to do an awful lot. But um, but I do love the tiny amount of time we spend with Boo. You do. And and it's such a great, I don't know, it's that moment. It, it That's really Scout's growing up moment, right? Because yeah. she, the thing about Scout is she's so, she's so selfish, which is fine. She's a child. Yeah. Like you have, that's when you're supposed <laughs> to be the most selfish. But you know, when she has Walter Cunningham over and he's pouring syrup and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she can't help but always question things and but not question them with any sense of like how this might hurt someone she's yeah. a little tasmanian devil just kind of like <laughs> barreling through things yeah. but with boo she gets you know and also she has that moment where she's really pushing dill which they do in the film really mm. well as well she's like well you have to have a father like if you yeah. didn't die then you have a father and Jem is like scout shut up yeah um <laughs> but with boo she she gets what his limits are and she yeah. you know uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Arthur, would you like to come sit out on the porch? And she finds the spot that has the least light in it because she knows that he'd be happier in mm. the shadows. And she, you know, takes his arm when he's walking her home and anticipates that he wants to see Jem. And it's it's sort of weirdly all the things her aunt is trying to teach her. Yeah. And Calpurnia is trying to teach her about being a quote unquote lady and a good host. Mm. And their way of doing it is really trapped up in some sort of some kind of like pointless societal things. But yeah. like what she takes away from it is the kernel of it all, which is how do you make someone feel welcome Yeah. Uh, in in a town where she has just seen that people are very mm. willing to make people feel unwelcome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that is, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about it before in that way that like she's just had to learn to be a grown up there in yeah. this kind of weird situation where the person she's terrified of has now like revealed himself to her. Um, and she fully understands what's happened. And I love that that we have like a little moment where we watch her see him think, figure it out and then say, oh, hey, boo. Yeah. Like she's figured it out. She's thought about it. She's like, oh, 
right. All yeah. of this stuff that's now come like all pulled together for her. And then the last few minutes or whatever of the film, it's just like her being extremely kind to Boo and it's lovely. Yeah. It is very nice. Um, yeah. Um, was there anything else that we discussed that we missed out on? I think that's it. It was a great discussion. I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah. It was a, a great crowd. Thanks, yeah. everybody. Thanks to everyone who came out. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to say what you're doing next time? Because I'll be away. Yes, Chelsea is away. So I'm on my own. So please come. Um, so this month we are going to read, well, I am going to read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which I'd never read before. Um, and we're going to watch Easy A, which is a modern high school take on The Scarlet Letter. Yeah. So that would I'm not going to watch the Demi Moore version where they try to make it sexy. <laughs> oh, I have never seen it, but actually I think I might try to. Um, I started reading the book and it's not hard. It's I, was, not hard. I don't know what I was expecting. I was just like, oh, like like Dickens or something, like when I had to read David I mean, it's very, it's a very slim book. <laughs> Is it? I'm on my Kindle, so. It's a very slim book. I mean, my only, I mean, I know the story. My only memory of it really is that I read it before to kill a mockingbird so it must have been easier okay for well, school so I, th- I think it was it's not grade, easier grade. <laughs> it's not easier than to kill a mockingbird no no but no 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 it's fine it's fine I'm okay um no I'm enjoying it so far um and I wasn't a fan of Easy A when I first saw it and I haven't seen it since so okay maybe this will make you a fan yeah it might or not we'll see but it's yeah it's it's an it's interesting I love I love this um thing of this trend that there was around for a while of Adapting classic things as teen shit. I love it. It's the best. It is the best. I mean, we wanted to do, in August, uh, Cruel Cruel Intentions. Intentions. um, But we couldn't get the rights to show it in cinema right now. Um, So we did that before and that was was great. Now, Les Liaisons Dangereuses, that was was tough read. Uh, um, Yeah, it was a tough read. Also, they're they're making or have made a miniseries of it. Oh. Which might also make that hard to show at some point. So, God damn it. Maybe that's it. Mm. Anyway, uh, we will do that again sometime. And what are you reading and watching? Oh, no, you can't just bring that on me. What Why do we always on? forget to ask? So I know I we do. It. Like, I, 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 okay, uh, what am I reading? The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Great answer. What I've been reading apart from that. Um, you see, the answer to this is always uh, a celebrity autobiography. Ooh. Um, and I've just finished Rob Lowe's celebrity autobiography. Wow, that was- which is actually <laughs> full of stories. It's a really, I mean, okay. it's obviously a period close to my heart, but I found it very good. Um, and I just started Jennifer Gray's, <laughs> Jennifer Gray's autobiography. Amazing. Uh, but just started that. But um, this is sort of weird, but um, Bren has been audiobooking Wild and Crazy producer Guys. Producer Bren. Producer Bren, who's my husband. <laughs> like also producer. Um I don't I don't know if everybody knows him by now. I just say Bren. Um, but he has been audiobooking Wild and Crazy Guys. Which is, and I can't think of the author's name, but I know him. Um, it's Martin Short, Steve Martin. No, 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 no. It's, sorry, it's not an autobiography. Oh. It's a biography about those guy, that SNL gang, and the kind of progress from there to like them taking over all of Hollywood. And it's really interesting. Like it, it you I kind like of forget that. that all of the eighties and nineties was just taken up with all Chevy Chase SNL and, guys. Yeah, yeah. and uh, oh, fucking nobody likes Chevy Chase. Like it's it's hilarious. I have, like I have heard, whew, I have heard stories, but it's wild. even even in his circle. Oh yeah, no, every, like it's it's just like this entire book is just like they're quite kind about everybody, like some kind of bitchy stories and all that. But like, <laughs> there's nothing nice. That I was anyone in an elevator with him once. Where are you? Yeah, did he hit you? <laughs> 
Um, no, I think he made a joke. They're like, there's one too many of us in the elevator, according to the sign. Oh, and, and you're like, get out then, you're mean. I don't think I said that, but I was like, well, we might all die. <laughs> I, I, did, I did respond to something. <laughs> um, I loved Chevy Chase when I was growing up. But um, but anyway, it's, it's it's a really interesting book and I might just stop listen, over listening to it and actually just read it myself. Um, but kind of similarly, what I've been watching and really enjoying so much is Only Murders in the Building second season. Oh, okay. Um, which... Like, I'm a huge Steve Martin fan. Like, he's my favorite comedian of all time. And I love him as an actor. Um, and like, you know, he hasn't been in that much good stuff of late. Um, and him and Martin Short went to see them about a week before they locked us down. Uh, they did a comedy gig. And so anyway, Only Murders in the Building. I was like, well, I'm going to watch this. And even if it's not good, I'm going to like it. Uh, which was kind of the case the first couple of episodes. I was a bit like, I don't know if this is. But then it just became like really lovely and by the end of the first season I was like oh my god I miss this so much now that it's gone mm. so second season is the same level of good fun uh, so I've really been enjoying that um, in terms of TV I've been really busy I haven't gotten to watch very much uh, Stranger Things season four yeah best Stranger Something. Things I've seen since season one for sure uh, I've enjoyed that and uh, that's probably all I've gotten to see lately that's plenty yeah, but like it's a long time since we podcasted, so it's true. I mean, I'm, you didn't, you know, not cumulatively since you've. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I have, I have not been. I haven't had lots of time for watching or reading. But um, how about you? Uh, so, as I probably have said on the podcast before, my most on-brand story of me as a child was at a mm. cocktail party of my parents. Um, and I guess, as I said earlier, my mom was an English teacher, and people were always asking her what to read and I was sitting at our counter and someone said, you know, Carol, what should I read? And at three years old, I said, Bonfire of the Vanities comes highly recommended, which <laughs> everyone delighted in and I have never been allowed to forget. Um, but I'd never actually read Bonfire of the Vanities. At so, three years old? Uh, at three years old or I'm ever. Um, <laughs> and so I started reading it now and like, it, I don't know if I will still be recommending it after. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it's quite... I don't need to, I don't need to love every character that I read, but it, it's really, horrible. everyone is really I, I like it then. <laughs> I like reading about it's people really, And like, I think um, it's, it's very dense as well, which mm. is not usually my thing, but there is a great humor and rhythm to it. And I think like when I get into, into a chapter, um, I, I sort of feel, I was talking to my partner about this and saying, I sort of feel like American Psycho sort of covered that right. era and the theme and the general gist of what is trying to be said about that era yeah in a way that i found more interesting and affecting and terrifying smaller and book <laughs> smaller book i mean still the worst thing i've ever read in my life in terms of like has given me nightmares but yeah. also some of the best writing i've ever yeah. read in my yeah. life but um have you ever seen the film i have completely different yeah we did yeah. it for cinema book club that's why bonfire the Bon, oh, bonfire of the Vanities, vanity. oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. No, I heard that Bonfire of Vanities is a terrible film. Like, I love it. Well, it's De Fama, so it's like hugely over the top. But um, I I was actually just trying to see if I could Google it there. I can't remember the name of the podcast, but there was a really good deep dive into the making of it. So when you okay. finish that book, I assume you'll watch the film. Yeah. Um, And that's it's actually really interesting. It's kind of a, a manky story, but um, it is a big, silly film. Yeah. You should definitely watch it. I, I, <laughs> but, I mean, no, it's and, and like I am... I'm plowing through it, um, but I, I bought don't. it recently. Actually, not it's a like big book. a couple of months it's, ago. <laughs> it's a big book as well, but like I think the, I think what he's doing in the prose is is capturing the sort of like mania and overindulgence of 
1980s New York. Yeah. By way of repetition. Oh, okay. And it, and it just sort of becomes a like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, like in, in terms of like people say, you know, like you're in their thought process so that you kind of get that, you know, yeah. manic. And then I did this and then this and then this. Ah, this okay. again. You know, it's it's sort of. So you're like, that's clever. I just don't want to read it. And also like anytime they're talking about the stock market, I just glaze over. I'm like, I don't, I don't understand what a bond is. And I don't, I'll read this page four times and I still don't yeah. know. You just um, skip that bit. But anyway, yes. So that's what I'm reading there. And I don't. Don't think I talked because we've forgotten to do this the last couple of times and it's been a while. I don't think I talked about the staircase. I don't think you have. But I'm obsessed. I think yeah. it's the best Ooh. thing I've seen this year and I just don't understand why you haven't watched it yet. It's and because I have to finish Severance, which I've also been watching. I also have to finish Severance, but only a couple of episodes left. So after that staircase. Okay. <laughs> I just think it it I just I just found it like so beautifully done and also really made me think about I mean I I think I already am someone who thinks a lot about like why we are obsessed with true crime and I have a lot of like you know moral opinions on it and can get you know and I think that it kind of captured and synthesized Mm. the way that I think about it and I thought it was asking questions in the right way and also um what I haven't read yet it was recommended to me is I know that there's a lot of Vanity Fair articles about for example the documentary makers that are featured in as characters in the oh, drama series who okay. are not so happy with the drama series okay. and feel like they've not been. So I, it's also one of those ones that I, I quite like when like I'm into something and then there's this whole other world of things to explore. As yeah. I've not seen the documentary. Oh, I have seen the documentary. I did but I wasn't very read a long it, form so. article about the case years and years ago. So I sort of knew, I knew the bones of it, loved the series, thought mm. Antonio Campos was did a brilliant job, great acting, you know, everything great. But now I'm like, oh, I can, I can also watch the documentary and I have all these long form articles to read about the series now. And like, yeah, I, I have nice. a whole little world to explore with it. So <laughs> I love that. I'm pretty happy about that. Okay. Um, so yeah. that's been your recommendation to me for a long time now, but it I has. just haven't got, uh, yeah, I know I will. It is on my list. I have been watching other things, but that's the one that I'll, okay. I'll plant my flag. Seen any good movies lately? Oh, probably. Oh, I saw a film that I think I told you about, but I've not told podcasts about called Paris is in Harlem in the Galway Film Festival. Oh, yeah. That I loved. Um, mm. was just really like felt to me in a, in a great way, a kind of like early 2000s indie throwback intersecting stories in Harlem on one day when the Cabaret Act uh, in New York was repealed in 2017. So the act that um, made busking and dancing in certain bars illegal, but the bars that they uh, prosecuted all tended to be gay bars or black okay. owned clubs. Sorry, this was overturned in 2017. Yeah, yeah. So I remember when I was living in New York, I knew I knew <laughs> that busking wild. was illegal technically. Okay. Um, but I didn't know that it was connected to these other laws. And so this, so, so the film sort of uses jazz uh, both, for form and content in the way that the story, like it, like quite cleverly done in the way it's shot and overlapped and things. Mm. Um, and all, all leading up to the characters converging on a club in Harlem on this night when there is a shooting. Okay. That sounds great. Yep. I hope it gets picked up and distributed. And if not, this is a it. wasted conversation. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it will. If it's good, I'm sure it will. Yeah. Um, I was going to say Elvis because I loved Elvis. Aww. I actually keep thinking about Elvis and how I'd like to watch it again, which surprises me because I didn't think I would like it at all, but I did. 
Um, so I recommend it to everybody. This tiny little movie called Elvis. Yeah. Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> give him a budget. Oh, God. I Yeah, I'd like to watch it again, but I probably won't. But um, <laughs> I did. I just thought I thought it was a, a nice surprise. You yeah. know, when a big stupid blockbuster comes along, and you're like, I'll go see this because it's on or like you should see it. Um, but I found it very moving and very cool and very like a really like almost abstract portrait of a artist that you know really 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 well but it gives him a great little context and it's very flashy and very cool and I thought Austin Butler was really good um yeah I loved Elvis that was probably the last thing I saw in the cinema oh, we gotta get back pretty in. in pink and society double bill the other night and to kill a mockingbird <laughs> and to kill a mockingbird of course and back to the future <laughs> I just seen old movies in the cinema all the time um, I also realized we got to this point we didn't talk about Harper Lee at all in this whole podcast but you know what Read about her. Top gal. Top gal. Really interesting <laughs> person. Um, yeah. I, the one fact I want to leave with Harper Leon, which I think is great, which is that for Christmas one year, her friends all got together and said, your Christmas present is we've all chipped in and we've, here is your year's salary. Now go off and write your book. And that's when she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And I just want to say, what a group of friends and what a great They're gift. the nicest group what of friends. What a great, and I understand that like, you know, pulling together your friend's salary in 1962 or whatever was maybe a slightly easier thing to do than it would be for any of our friends to do for us now. But I just think it was such a well thought out oh, idea. Oh, it's amazing. And, and just the I gesture of believing in your friend that much is yeah. so, it's such a beautiful thing to do. Yeah. So if any, if all of our listeners would like to pull together and pay us to go off and write some sort of book about adapting films for a year. I don't, I, I I don't want to do that. I, I think I, I think I just said on this podcast that I think that screenwriting books should be taken with a massive grain of salt. I think I just I don't want to do it. Killed, killed any thought I uh, any hope I ever had of writing. We'll just keep doing this podcast for you for free. <laughs> if you want to pay us our salary for I don't know the next forty years, so we could go on holidays. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, yeah. <laughs> thanks, everyone. And thanks, Charlene. Thank you, Chelsea. Bye. Bye.